Hi, I'm Josh Shearer and I serve as the lead pastor here at Gawley Uniting Church. I wanted to personally thank you for joining us today. We exist as a church to see lives transformed with the good news of Jesus. Now, I hope this service inspires you. I hope it blesses you. I hope it builds your faith and I hope it gives you perspective that God is moving in your life. If there is anything that we can do to help you, don't be afraid to reach out on social media or email our office. Thanks for joining us again and let's get to the service. Well, last week, if you were here, or you might have caught up online, last week I began our time together with an observation. And it's that you and I were present for every decision that we have ever made. Some of you, well, not, well, I didn't see anyone go, wow, I've never thought about that before. Oh, that's good. I'm going to write that down. No, we get that. You and I, we're, we're present for every decision that we have ever made in our life. Whether we are proud of those decisions or whether we regret them and wish they'd never happened, it's still true that we are, we were present for them. And so to begin our time together today, I want to offer another thought, a little bit different. And that thought is, the easiest person to deceive in our life is the person in the mirror. Have you ever thought about that? The easiest person to deceive in our life is the person that we're looking at in the mirror. It's us. We wish this were different, but to be honest, it's the truth. And we're going to talk about why that's the truth in a minute. But, but, but for the moment, I just want you to let that sink in, that you are really good at deceiving you. In fact, you're better at that than you are at anything else. You're better at deceiving you than deceiving anyone else. And something that you've most likely never come to realize when you think about it, if we take this sort of a, a little step further, something we've never come to realize is that we have most likely talked ourselves into or deceived ourselves, maybe even sold ourselves into every bad decision that we have ever made. Welcome to church. Feeling encouraged? If, we, if we're honest with ourselves, every bad decision we've ever made, we probably sold ourselves into it in some way. Very few of us are coerced with threats to our life or, or our livelihood in, in such way that we have no control over our decisions. And be, thanks to God for that. And so, if that's the case, then most of us have deceived ourselves in some way into every bad decision that we've ever made. And worst, worst still, is that many of us were the mastermind behind that, that bad decision. Whether it was financial, relational, whether it was professional, whether it was academic, most of the time, we actually had the bad idea and then we convinced ourselves of it as we went along. And so, you were there for all of those bad decisions. And if we were to just take this to the furthest point before I start offering some hope, is that you were, you have probably done more to undermine your success in life than anyone else in the world. 
This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. No, I, I can't leave you hanging like that. We, and we do have to acknowledge that there's outside pressures and there's things that impact on our decision-making processes. But at the end of the day, we still make a decision. Now, I've got to tell you, I'm not throwing stones here because I'm as guilty of this reality as you are. There's this salesperson that exists in our head. And that salesperson convinces us of all sorts of things. And the salesperson, their logic is flawed, if you actually look at it and you listen clearly. The logic is flawed. They're not actually that good at it. But we seem to fall for it anyway. If someone, if a salesperson in a shop were to, to come and present the arguments that we present to ourselves, we'd laugh at them and leave. But somehow, we, are, we get convinced by the very same arguments that we place before ourselves. We fall for it anyway. Now, to be honest with you, and I've got to be transparent, I'm a sucker for chocolate. I've talked about this before. It's a bit of a confession of mine, but the spiritual gift of self-control is largely non-existent in my life when it comes to chocolate. It's just, it's just the way it is. It takes the salesman in my head about two seconds, maybe even less, to convince myself that I deserve another piece of chocolate in whatever situation I'm facing in that moment. Even though I know that too much of it is not good for me. My family has a history of diabetes, and so I know that that's a risk for me if I don't take care of myself. You look at me now and you go, how is it that he loves chocolate so much? And to be honest, I didn't used to weigh this much. I used to weigh an awful lot more than this. And so it's been hard work that's taken me where I am. But at the same time, I've still got this salesman in my head. And here's just how it goes, and you might be able to relate to this. Oh, gee, I could really go some chocolate. No, it's not good for you. Just wait. Or have, have it later, just once. But, but I went to the gym this morning, and I'm in a calorie deficit anyway, so I'll just have one piece. Oh, that was pretty good. Well, you did do extra cardio while you are at the gym today, so you're on the treadmill for five minutes longer than you planned, so have, just, you can have one more piece. It's okay. And, and, and you didn't have a big lunch, so you could probably sneak another piece while you're at it. The afternoon progresses. Oh, Josh, it's mid-afternoon. Grab another bit to get you through the lull that you know you have. As soon as you hit about half past two, you're no good at writing sermons in the afternoon anyway. So you may as well have a bit of chocolate to help kick you up. Oh, Josh, you nearly finished your sermon now. Why don't you have some chocolate as a reward? Oh, look, the block's already gone, or nearly gone. What are you going to do? Well, you may as well finish it. <laughs> and this is the one, to be honest with you, I experienced this one in the last couple of weeks. This is crazy. The block's nearly finished. You may as well finish it so you're not tempted tomorrow. What is that? Why do we do this to ourselves? Sadly, this, this self-deception is a part of our nature. It is. We don't want it to be, but it is. This, the 17th century English philosopher and statesman, you probably learned about him in school, called Francis Bacon. 
made the following observation, and it's a bit of older language, but, but it, I think it captures it really well. The human understanding, when it has once adopted an opinion, draws all things to support and agree with it. And though there be a greater number and weight of instances to be found on the other side of the argument, yet these it either neglects or despises, or else by some distinction sets aside and rejects. So, Francis Bacon is, in the 18th century, describing what we now call confirmation bias. When we have decided that we want to do something, there is very little in the world that can convince us otherwise. And if, noth- if nothing else, we are really good at convincing ourselves to continue down that road, even when there is evidence to the contrary. We are, what, what does that mean? We are suckers for ourselves and what we have already decided to do. We naturally open up ourselves to anything that confirms what we already want to be true, and we set aside anything to the contrary. We are so good at self-deception that we reject facts, reality, and even logic. What a dumb thing to say that if I... I need to finish the block of chocolate today so I don't get tempted for it tomorrow. That doesn't make any sense at all. We defy logic. So once we've made up our mind, we pick and choose a narrative that supports and justifies what we want to do. And this is the real reason, and we've talked about this before, this is the real reason that social media arguments are a waste of time is that there is no way in the world that you through a keyboard can convince someone on the other side of the world that you are right and they are wrong. Why? Because you've already decided, and so have they. Save yourself some time and put the keyboard down. There's no point arguing with anyone on Facebook. And in many cases, there's no point arguing with anyone face-to-face either. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 writes this concept, he writes it this way, the heart is deceitful above all things and is beyond cure. Who can understand it? The prophet Jeremiah, looking at at a bunch of kings as they went through and constantly failed, he's looking at them going, the heart is deceitful above all things and there's there's no cure for it. It's It's a condition that we all have. Who can understand it? Who can make sense of it? And so, I hope I've done an adequate job of painting the picture that this is a problem. If nothing else, and you've got to this point and you're going, this is great. If nothing else, I need you to hear that our, our propensity to self-deception is a problem. If that's your learning for today, great, because that's a good step forward. But let's go further. Because we all have a version of this self-deception, and most of them more serious than a a low-level addiction to chocolate. Because whilst chocolate might be trivial, it's a pattern. That pattern that I illustrated to us is consistent across all of human nature. Some things are minor, but many of them are significant. The things that we convince ourselves of, deceive ourselves of, lie to ourselves about, are actually a lot more significant than that. And so my hope for us today, with the rest of the time we have, 
is to explore a way to help us navigate this problem, to navigate these situations of self-deception so that we make better decisions and hopefully ultimately live with fewer regrets with the time we have left in this life. Does that sound like a worthy endeavor? I agree. Let's get there. So we are in this, we are in this series, part two, of a series called Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets. And the content for this series is drawn from a book by Andy Stanley called Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets. And I've added a few things and preaching things a little bit differently, but I've got to give him the honor for the ideas in this space to begin with. But the big idea of this series, if you weren't here last week or just to give you a revision, is that good questions give us the wisdom we need to make better decisions and live with fewer regrets. Good suggestions are better than good, uh, sorry, good questions are better than good suggestions because questions invite us to look at reality. And we're asking five questions over the course of this series. And I believe that if, if we're willing to ask ourselves to answer honestly and to act accordingly, that we will make better decisions and live with fewer regrets. And I also touched on the reality that this, us getting this right is not just about us. That we are not the only ones impacted by our decisions, are we? You don't have to go too long in the world to be realized that we are impacted by others. And so the reverse has got to be true, that other people are impacted by our decisions, the ones that we are proud of and the ones that we regret. And so we owe it to ourselves, yes, but we also owe it to the people around us, our loved ones and those that we care about, to get this right. And as I also mentioned last week, this series, I believe, is helpful whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. I don't know where you're at with faith, particularly those of you joining us online, I can't see you. But I believe this is helpful for us. If you're a follower of Jesus, we've already signed up to follow Jesus in our life, to, to sign up to His teachings and to, to uh, accept the wisdom and the authority of Jesus over our life. We already trust Him with our life. So living by the wisdom of Scripture is kind of part of the deal. So if you're not willing to do that, you're probably not a follower of Jesus. And so if you follow Jesus, this is... Kind of, kind of got to do it in some ways. But if you're not a Christian, you still get to benefit from this wisdom. Because regardless of whether you be, everything you believe about this is, is true or not, it doesn't matter. You can still benefit from the wisdom of it. And I hope one day you might discover the truth of Jesus as Lord of your life as well. And so last time I offered a simple proverb, which is going to be, we're going to remind ourselves of every week of this series that reminds us to consider the value of looking ahead and, and considering the ultimate, not just the immediate outcomes of our decisions. The prudence, it's, it's from Proverbs 27 verse 12, and it says, the prudence see danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and pay the penalty. And so these questions over this series are designed to help us lift our eyes see the danger that may well come and act, respond accordingly and take refuge. So are you ready for the first question? You're like, Josh, you took 40 minutes last week and you've taken 15 minutes this morning. Yes, I'm ready for the first question. The first question is the integrity question. 
The integrity question. What is integrity? Integrity is consistency, congruency. It's being the same person inside as you are outside. People that are considered to be people of integrity are people that are consistent no matter who's watching, no matter if they are in a room alone or if they're in a room with a thousand people, they behave the same way. That's what integrity is. And so I'm going to give you this integrity question up front and then we're going to unpack it with some scripture. The integrity question is this, am I being honest with myself? Full stop. Am I being honest with myself? And then it also pays to ask this question twice. Am I being honest with myself? Full stop. Think about it. Am I being honest with myself, really? Really? Because remember, we, we deceive ourselves, so am I being honest with myself, really? And why this, you said, Josh, that's not really that. But why this question, I believe, is so helpful is because it allows us in a moment to press the pause button on whatever situation we are encountering and take a good, long look at what it is we are trying to sell ourselves on in that moment in time. And before I unpack this any further, I want to take us into the passage of Scripture that helps us explore this idea and the consequences of it. And I think it illustrates the concept perfectly. We're headed to 2 Samuel chapter 11. And if you might already know what this is, it's, it's quite a famous story in Scripture, not because of, its, of the good things about it, but because of the bad things about it, that it's most well known. And to give you some context, the story is about King David. King David is, well, the greatest king of, of ancient Israel, and he, he lived about a thousand BC, about a thousand years before the life of Jesus. And the context is that the Israelite nation, or the army of the Israelite nation is out and about taking hold of the land that God had promised them. So they're out waging war and conquest. It's what people did in the ancient world. And so we're starting in verse 11. I'm just going to read it, stop, and mention a couple of things, but I'm going to let most of the text do the heavy lifting here today. Starting in verse 1, should be up on the screen. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent jo Joab, his, his head general, the head of his com commander of his armies, out with the king's men, with his men, and the whole Israelite army. And they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. He didn't go. He decided to stay home from church that day. He didn't go. And one, one evening, David got up from his bed, couldn't sleep, walked around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. Hmm. The woman was good looking. And David sent someone to find out who she was. Yep, fifth house on the left, down that, down that road. Who lives there? He asks his servants. And the man, the servant, responded, Oh, that's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Dope. Then David sent messages to get her, and she came to him. And they slept together. 
And there's a comment here. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. I mean, she just finished her menstrual cycle. So she slept with him and she went back home. I wonder, let's pause there. I wonder what narrative David was telling himself in that moment to justify sleeping with another man's wife. How do you reckon that went? David, you're the king. You can do what you want. No one's really going to know because, you know, if, there's no one else here. All the, all the fighting men are out and about, so there's not really anyone else around. Oh, and, and her husband's away. You know where he is. So, you know, it's not, there's not really that many other consequences. Oh, oh, by the way, David, you know, she's just finishing her, her menstrual cycle, and so there's not really going to be any consequences because, you know, she's not really fertile for another couple of weeks. Let's be real about that. That's kind of how it works in many ways. So, it's going to be fine, David. Just go and do it. There's, you know, it's no worries. We look at that and go, you're mad. But somehow, the king of Israel, who, by the way, Scripture tells him is a man after God's own heart, finds himself in this situation. It's because the heart is deceitful above all else. The passage continues. The woman, Bathsheba, let's call her by her name, conceived, dolt, and she sent word to David with the great news, I'm pregnant. And what's David's response? David goes into cover-up mode. So David went, sorry, David sent this word to Joab, the head of the army, send me Uriah the Hittite, send him home for a spell from, from the front. And Joab sent Uriah the Hittite back to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go to your house, wash your feet, put your feet up for a minute, refresh, because given your home, you may as well go and do that. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him to his home. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and didn't go home. He stayed with the servants in the palace rather than going back home. I wonder, for the wives in the room, if your husband was a fly-in, fly-out sort of worker or deployed somewhere and popped home to your city and didn't come home and say hi, how would you respond? Yeah. <laughs> I can just think, anyway, that's just a side comment, but he didn't go back. And David was told, Uriah, he didn't go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? You've come back for a spell from the front. Why didn't you go home and see your wife? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. They're out at war. How could I then go home to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as I live, I wouldn't do such. As surely as you live, he's swearing on David's life. I've got more integrity than that, King David. 
You and I, we, we've got more integrity than that, he says. I wouldn't do such a thing as to go home and, and, and live it up while the rest of our men, all my brothers in arms, are out in the fields. Problem. David's plan didn't work. Because then David said to him, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. Why? Well, probably so he'd go home and spend some time with his wife. But in the evening, Uriah just went to sleep on the mat with the master's servants and stayed in the palace. He didn't go home. David's plan really didn't work. He got himself into trouble and he couldn't even figure out a way to get this, this woman, Bathsheba's husband, to sleep with her so that he could cover up his indiscretions. Because if he comes home that's the way the baby is explained. Tick, everyone gets to move on with life. And what I find so ironic is Uriah's conscience wouldn't allow him to live it up when he was home. What a contrast of integrity between the king and Uriah. But the passage continues. He says, In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah back to the front lines. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is the fiercest. Put him in the front line and then withdraw from him. Leave him stranded in battle so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, where they were, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out to fight against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell over, and Uriah the Hittite died. You get this picture, they fell over. What does that mean? Well, it means that they withdrew from him. They stumbled down. If there was archers on the walls of the city, and everyone suddenly drops to the ground, and you're left standing there, guess what? And he dies. And so while Joab had the city under siege, sorry, skip. And Joab sent David a full account of the battle, and he instructed the messenger, when you've finished giving the king this account, he might be angry with you because you lost some men. And I'll skip down a little bit. But when he gets angry, tell him, by the way, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. So the battle didn't go as we planned, but by the way, your backside is safe. And that's exactly what happened. And David responds, verse, 70, verse 25, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. So David's response is, all is good in the world now that my backside is covered. And when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the, after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife. 
and bore him the son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Fair enough too, displeases all of you, I can see the look on your face. In the, in a, how interesting it is, how fast this got out of hand, isn't it? David convinced himself of a course of action, standing on the roof, looking at a good-looking girl and a few houses down. And when the, con- excuse me, <coughs> when the consequences started showing up, he doubled down on his dumb choices. He didn't just fix it in the early stages. He wasn't honest and upfront about what he'd done. He doubled down to cover it up. We've never done that, have we? But this is the rabbit hole of self-justification. What is happening when we start trying to explain or justify a decision to ourselves? What's happening in our minds? We begin twisting the truth of what's really going on. We begin reframing the truth. We begin spinning it. And we have an awful lot to say about politicians that spin the truth, don't we? When was the last time we called ourselves to account for spinning truth in the same way? Let's call it what it is. Friends, when we deceive ourselves, we are lying to ourselves. When we try and justify something to ourselves, we lie to ourselves. Justifying is just a lying to yourself. That was funnier in my head. And the problem is that in the world, we know this, you can't trust a liar because they don't take responsibility and they twist the truth. And today, we're going we're gonna to fire the dishonest person in the mirror the same way that we would let go or fire a dishonest staff member. And we're going to hire a version of ourselves that tells us the truth, even when we don't want to hear it. And as a leader, I need you to know as a leader, I need to know about re- the truth about reality, not what I want to hear. That's absolutely true. Or I can't lead this church in a meaningful way. We can't lead ourselves if the information we're telling ourselves is not the truth. And so to combat this problem, we've got to tell ourselves the honest and rigorous truth, even and possibly especially when It convicts us and makes us feel bad about ourselves. This is obvious, but it's not easy. Let's go back to our narrative. King David found himself down this self-deception rabbit hole. In verse 12, sorry, chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Lord, the Lord, having been displeased, sent Nathan to David. Uh Uh-oh, here comes the prophet. And when he came to him, he said... Nathan tells David a parable. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it. It grew up with him and his children. This is a friendly lamb, a family lamb. It shared his food, drank from his cup, that's gross, but never mind, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the town to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead of taking from his abundance, instead he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. He prepared the little 
daughter you for the visitor. And David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die, the injustice of it all. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. David is angry. Remember, he's a man after God's own heart, a righteous fury. Then Nathan said, you can imagine the look on Nathan's face maybe as he turns to David and says, you are that man. You are this guy. This is what the Lord of, the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you over, over Israel and I delivered you from the hands of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and all of Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you more than this. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing this evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife as your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites, but his blood is on your hands. And so because you've done this, the sword will never depart from your house. You are always going to be at war, David, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. And sadly, it skips down because of my contempt. Because of the utter contempt you show for me, the son that will be born to you will die. Consequences. In this moment, Nathan, as a prophet, shines a mirror on David's situation. I gave you everything, yet somehow you convinced yourself it was not enough and you found something else to take. If you'd asked me, I would have given you more. I'm a good father, remember? I know what good gifts are. And his self-deception had consequences beyond himself. David's self-deception led to the death of a child and the death of a warrior and ultimately the brokenness of a household. And so when he found himself down the rabbit hole, what does God do for David? God shines a light on the situation and speaks truth. What if God had intervened earlier? I wonder. What if King David had forced himself to press pause, even for a moment, to ask himself what was really going on in his heart? What was really happening in this situation? I think if if King David had taken a moment to pause, I think things could have gone a lot differently. And, and friends, this is where the integrity question for you and I now, none of us are probably not going to be the king of a nation or the queen of a nation, a monarch. We're probably not going to have an army at our disposal. And I'd like to think that many of us, most of us, hopefully none of us, will ever sleep with another person's spouse. But if any of that were to become a reality or the risk of it, I believe the integrity question gives us what we need to press pause on our situation and have a look honestly at what is going on. Am I being honest with myself? Really? 
We owe it to ourselves, to be honest, because there's no win in justifying it. King David's story is so clear, but so is yours. Why did I say yes to that, really? Why am I avoiding him, really? Why am I postponing that meeting, really? Why do I keep making excuses to myself, really? Why, why are you quitting that job, really? Why do you choose to wear that, really? Why did you buy that, really? What's the real reason that you don't call your children anymore? Why did you move in, really? Why are you moving out and giving up on your marriage, really? Why won't you get help, really? Now, I don't say those to rub a salt in anyone's wounds, but to paint the picture of just how much this applies across our life, no matter what we are facing. And it's interesting that when we look back on our decisions that became regrets, when we look back on them, we often wonder, what were we thinking? With the wisdom of time and perspective, we see the deception for what it was, a lie. A lie that we told ourselves. And so when we start selling ourselves on anything, we owe it to ourselves and to those around us to ask the question, because we rarely need to sell ourselves on a good idea. So when we begin to sell ourselves, stop and ask the question, what is this really about? What's going on here? What am I trying to sell myself really? But as we wrap up, I know we've taken ourselves to a really sort of tough place. And as we wrap up, I wanted you to notice something. Notice that even despite the brokenness that we read in this narrative of David and the dumb choices he made, God still intervened in David's life and brought something good out of his choices. And those choices cost him dearly, but God did not leave him. His second son to Bathsheba after the first one died, his name was Solomon. And a thousand years later, a descendant of David would be born named Jesus. And Jesus would grow up and declare that anyone who believes in Him would not die, but have eternal life, would live and have life in abundance. And Jesus proved His power and His authority by dying and being raised to life. Friends, God brought blessing out of the brokenness of David's choices. And that through Jesus, the word for you this morning is that He will do the same for you. And so if everything we have talked about this morning has just ripped open wounds for you about the brokenness of your past or the brokenness of your reality now, what I've got to tell you is that that is not the end of your story, that God has more for you through Jesus than just your choices. And that there is something available to you now to change all of it, to write a new story, a new narrative. And that is a choice to trust Him with your life and allow Him to bring hope out of the brokenness of your life. So if God can bring blessing out of the brokenness of this story, and this is pretty dark, if God can bring 
hope out of this brokenness, God can bring absolute life out of yours. So this week, I want to encourage you to have a heart-to-heart with yourself in the mirror and ask yourself out loud and use your name, Josh, are you being honest with yourself? Really? And then tell yourself the truth, even if you don't want to hear it. You owe it to yourself and you owe it to those you love to answer it. Because integrity is only ever as strong in our life as our willingness to be honest with ourselves. And even if you don't like the answer, even if you don't plan to do anything with the answer, I believe that the experience alone of stopping and shining a light has the power to shine enough of God's light and truth into your life to give you the wisdom you need this week, this month, this year to make a better decision and live with one less regret. Let's pray, church. Loving and gracious God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way it teaches us. And There's so much about Scripture that is a wonderful illustration and a wonderful piece of wisdom about what, what it is that we should be doing. But Lord, there's also so much in there that points to the stuff we ought not be doing. And we're called to learn from it. Not by example, but by contrast. So Lord, speak to us about the rabbit hole of our self-deception. Give us the courage to take a moment when we feel ourselves trying to sell ourselves on something. Give us the courage to stop and ask the question. The question that helps us to be real with ourselves on the inside as we are on the outside. And from that, Lord, would you give us and would you bless us with the wisdom that we need to make a better decision and live with one less regret. Lord, give us courage and wisdom this week to live this out. In your name we pray. Amen.